I'm irrecoverably convinced that you and I and every other person who's ever lived was made to see the glory of Jesus. That's why you're made. God fashioned you in your humanity like a telescope. Telescopes have purposes. You can use it for a baseball bat. You can use it for a lot of other things. You can set it in the corner of the room. You can prop doors open with it. You can do whatever else you want, but it's just not why it was made. And so many people use their little vapor of a life for such futile purposes. And you were made for such a grand purpose. I'm irrecoverably convinced. I can't be healed from it. I can't be, I can't be fixed in another way because that's why, according to God's Word, we're made. You're made to behold Jesus. And one day, I'm going to give you a chance to catch up with my words in your mind. My prayer is that the phrase I'm about to say would sink so deep in your heart like a dart from heaven that an angel would just shoot it right into your heart. One day, all the people on the earth will use their life for that purpose. The new heavens, the new earth, Christ the Lord reigning in all of His risen glory. And all the people will stop propping doors open with their little telescope. They'll stop swinging it like a baseball bat. They'll use their life to behold Jesus. That's what the book of Haggai is about. It's a shadow way that comes in the substance that we find in the New Testament as we keep reading the book. And I invite you to that Old Testament prophecy, H-A-G-G-A-I, as we say around here. That's the clean, white, stuck-together pages in the front part of your Bible. Um, the Old Testament book of Haggai is probably one or two pieces of paper. In my Bible, it's one and a half uh, pieces of paper. And speaking of clean, white, stuck-together pages, uh, I have read it in this book and in uh, God's endless sense of humor, they were just stuck together. <laughs> but uh, Haggai, we will look at chapter 1 and 2, which is the entirety of the book, but our focus will be chapter 2. We'll begin the reading in just a moment in Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. But I want to tell you why we're in this book today. January is kind of a smattering of passages of Scripture. We've looked at 2 Corinthians a couple of weeks ago, the book of Romans last Sunday, Haggai today, and we'll be hanging out, God willing, with Jonathan and David next Sunday in the Old Testament. But January is not just a random uh, smattering. It's a very purposeful smattering. Today uh, is, as we've marked in our church's history for 12 years, a sermon focused on human sanctity and ethnic harmony. Sometimes we've tackled those one at a time. Sometimes we've tried to tackle them together. And you may be thinking, if you know anything about the page and a half or two pages 
of the book of Haggai, why would you pick the book of Haggai to focus on the themes of ethnic harmony and human sanctity? Maybe you've never read this little letter and and, and it sounds strange to you anyway that we would dig into the Old Testament for such a theme. Well, Grace Church exists, let me be clear, negatively and positively, not to enter into the fray of the latest cultural or political clash. I don't care what your favorite political pundit says. I care less. I don't need to read the newspaper to figure out what the greatest need in our culture is. I'm well enough acquainted with the depravity of my own heart to know what the greatest need of our culture is. And we can line up pundits to say it our favorite way, but that's not going to end until Jesus comes back in every generation. And, and we don't exist to enter into the latest cultural or political clash. I have no interest in that. It's not why we do ethnic harmony sermons. It's not why we do human sanctity focused sermons. Rather, our reason for existence is to delve into, to digest, and to declare the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, that God has provided by Himself, with no help from anyone else, through the labors of His Son in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, God has provided the only possible way for you, I, and 8 billion other people who are alive and breathing today, the only possible way for you to embrace and experience God as the satisfaction of your greatest need and the purpose for which you were created. So today I'm going to seek to tackle ethnic harmony. That means all the divisions that exist among all kinds of humans are finally laid to rest and put to death by the Gospel, ethnic harmony, and human sanctity that you and every other person God has made, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight, rich, poor, young, old, whatever the case may be, differently abled, God has made every person with a stamp of His own image. Ethnic harmony and human sanctity. I find wonderfully meeting beneath the theme of global missions. The Christian Gospel offers every person, there's human sanctity, the highest possible privilege. The Gospel offers every person the highest possible privilege and offers every person the healthiest possible interactions with one another, which is eternal union with God and eternal union with each other. And all of that comes to us by and only by the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So in that way, the theme of Gospel spreading, ethnic harmony, and the theme of human dignity and sanctity find their meat in the person of Jesus and the labors that He endured in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. All right, I want to try to unpack that theme in a few minutes. And I'm preaching. That's my calling. But I'm telling you on the front end, I'm appealing to you. 
There will be a call to action today. I want you to know on the front end where we are headed. I'm asking you to ask God to enable you to desire and to do what God desires for you to do. So if you go to Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, you meet me in the book of Haggai chapter 2 and we'll seek to unpack the theme of God's glory in Christ spreading to all the peoples of the world. We'll begin our reading in Haggai chapter 2 verse 1. Hear the word of the living God. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and say to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when, I, when, I came, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, once again, let's ask for God's blessing as we consider this passage and its surrounding context. Father, we are so easily distracted. That is an understatement of the ages. We put priority on things that are going to vanish. We dedicate our life, our energy, our time, our effort, our resources to stuff that's so trivial. We indeed waste our life. The little life we have, you call it a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow. But in that little vapor, you tell us in your word that you can accomplish things of eternal consequence if we would put our little life in your hands and we would learn to care about the things you care about and engage in the work that you are interested in engaging in, that you would be pleased, though you don't need us, to use us. What a privilege, what an honor to be able to leave a dent for the glory of Jesus in this world through our little life. So God, would you come, not only individually, to deepen our resolve to follow Christ, but also corporately. That this church would be dominated by God. 
and that we would care about what you care about and engage in the things that you have given us to do till Jesus comes, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, I want to be very clear about this little book of Haggai from the very beginning. You may not like it. You may have never read it. But it is the words of God himself. Thus says the Lord, chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 11. Declares the Lord, chapter 1, verse 9, verse 13, chapter 2, verse 4, three times, verse 8, verse 9, verse 14, verse 17, verse 23, three times. The voice of the Lord their God, chapter 1, verse 12. The Lord's message, chapter 1, verse 13. Two pages, 15-ish references to this is the voice of God. And in this message, what is God saying? Why is it in the Bible? Well, it's a very important question because actually without these couple of chapters the message of the Bible would be missing a very key piece of the puzzle. You know what it's like. You put together the thousand piece puzzle, you're missing the last piece, and you're frustrated. Well, not only would you be frustrated without the book of, of Haggai, the whole story wouldn't make complete sense. It's integral to the story of redemption. The message of Haggai is vital to the overall narrative, narrative of Scripture. It shows us how an important piece of the puzzle of redemptive history, Genesis to Revelation, fits together. People, individually and collectively, Haggai wants you to know, find our greatest need met in the presence of God. The person, I believe Haggai, and I'll seek to try to demonstrate this, the person that Haggai is pointing to is Jesus of Nazareth. You living in fellowship with Jesus. Well, I said at the beginning, beholding Jesus with the little telescope of your life is more important to human flourishing, to the sanctity of every person who's ever been born or will be born, and to the harmony of all peoples than anything else in the universe. Nothing is more important to human flourishing than living in and loving the presence of God. So I'm going to ask you, have you had a good day? Did you have a good day yesterday? Have you had a good week? Psalm 73 says, the nearness of God is my good. Have you had a good day? Have you had a good week? Haggai wants you to know that you are not meaningless if you don't seek God, but your life will not have meaning if you do not have God. So I want to give you a quick overview of the book. We did this in our Here's Love series, so I don't need to go back and give you all of that. But the first point is a quick background to the book of Haggai, and I've got a series of questions that I hope will just catch us all up to speed on what's going on with Haggai's book. Quick background to Haggai. Haggai. First, uh, there's, there's not a temple repaired 
when we get to the book of Haggai, so we have to start asking a question, why was it destroyed? Why was the temple in Jerusalem destroyed? Was the prophets before Haggai had prophesied, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah was ransacked, overthrown, and taken into captivity by a neighboring pagan power called Babylon. So when Babylon comes into Judah, 586, 587 B.C., basically 600 years before Christ, Babylon comes in, destroys virtually everything, including especially the temple, and carries away the vast majority of the people into slavery, captivity, and servitude. They do leave some behind. We'll get to that in a minute. Most of that generation that got carried away into captivity by Babylon died there in Babylon. They were there for 70 years. All right, so another question. Who returned? After the 70 years, who came back? Because that's who Haggai's preaching to. His contemporary Zechariah is preaching as well. They have very similar messages. Well, a remnant returned. Not everybody who went to Judah came back, but a remnant came back. Raymond Dillard, Trimper Longman, their Old Testament survey book, estimate that it was probably about 50,000 people. So just try to picture that. Picture your you know, local Memphis neighboring suburb or community that has about 50,000. That's how many people came back. As Pastor Rick prayed this morning for the uh, people group in Africa, he said there were 60-ish thousand. That's about how many people came back. It was a remnant of the captives in Babylon. Okay, so why was it destroyed, Babylon? Who came back? A remnant. Number three, how, w- how did they get to come back? I thought Babylon took them into captivity. They just up and decide one day, eh, let's go back home. Nope. Babylon was overthrown by another up-and-coming world superpower, pagan power, called Persia. So Persia takes over Babylon, And Persia starts making the rules. King Cyrus writes a decree that the Jews who want to go back to Jerusalem have at it. In fact, you can go rebuild your temple. Then Cyrus dies. His son, Cambyses, comes to the throne. Cambyses kills his own brother so that his brother won't usurp his power. And in guilt and probably, who knows, other reasons, Cambyses commits suicide. Now there's no king in Persia. Next to the throne is a guy named Darius. Darius finds Cyrus's decree. Hey, all you Jews who want to go back, go for it. Rebuild your temple if you want to. Darius, the king in Persia, finds that decree and says, yep, that's what you guys want to do. Go for it. Darius is the king in Persia when Haggai is preaching and writing. And when Zechariah is performing his ministry. Why was the temple destroyed? Babylon came. Who came back? A remnant. How was the return possible? Decree of the king of Persia. Another question, who stayed back in Babylon? Who didn't, you know, remnant came back to Jerusalem, but who stayed back in Babylon? Uh, The answer is, the people that Jeremiah told, hey, while you're there, build houses, get married, have kids, prosper. Let this place prosper. Show this pagan world that God is for his people, and they may carry you over there, but you're like a fragrant aroma. Everywhere you go, stuff is just going to get better. Have you ever noticed the missionary principle of what many missiologists have called redemption and lift? Redemption and lift. 
So when a bunch of people are redeemed, the society just starts to lift. People stop cheating on their taxes. People stop lying and stealing. People stop beating their wives. Because when you get saved, it affects your whole society. Financially, relationally, monetarily, on and on and on and on. Well, that was happening in Babylon because guess who was there? God's people. Everywhere we go, we seek to do good. Jeremiah told them to do that. A bunch of people did that. So they said, you know what? We're just going to stay here. We planted our lives here. We raised our kids here. We got grandkids here. We're just going to stay here and keep plugging along with Yahweh. All right, who stayed back in Babylon? It was those people. Remnant comes back. What were the inhabitants of the land in Israel, Judah, doing when the remnant came back? Remember, not everybody went to Babylon. Most of the people did. Not everybody. What were those people doing when the remnant came back? They were dwelling in all the structures that those people left behind. You lived in a little shack when the, when the folks got carried off. Man, move down the street to the big house, right? It's empty. And that's what they were doing. They were occupying the abandoned structures, but they were all in ruins. The ground, instead of being cultivated and producing produce and vegetation and uh, that which would be good for nutrition and for the, for the inhabitants, had instead lain fallow for three quarters of a century, 50 to 70 years. The, no farming except for a little sustenance farming. So the buildings are in ruin, the land is a mess. Who are those people, though, that, that stayed back there? The poor? The folks that Babylon thought couldn't contribute anything to their society? Surprise, surprise, Babylon said, you all are coming into captivity. Dot, dot, dot. That is you all who have some skills and can make us richer and can run our businesses and can work in our government and can serve in our little uh, industries. And they left everybody else who didn't have trade and skill behind. What did the remnant do when they returned? This is our last question on the little intro survey. Oh, second to last. What did the remnant do when they got back? Haggai 1 says they built or restored a bunch of houses. Got to have a place to live. They went a little overboard. Paneled houses. It's a derogatory term in Haggai. You live in your paneled houses. They also started to feast again. Hey man, it's good when you get back home after a long time away from the house, right? And you get moms cooking again. They started cooking their own stuff. But chapter 1 says they weren't satisfied. They started farming the land, cultivating the ground again. But Haggai 1 says the wind kept coming at an unusual rate of speed, blowing away all the grain. And instead of enough rain and water to, um, for the crops and the vegetation, there was a drought. And chapter 1, verse 11 talks about all the labor of your hands and so forth, not really satisfying. And here's the reason, verse 9. Because my house, God said, which lies desolate while each of you runs to your own house. Their priorities were out of whack. They were concerned about temporal things, not eternal things. And the consequence of all of that 
Haggai uses an allusion to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, where God said, didn't I tell you? If you put you first, I'm going to make sure you don't prosper. Now, some people totally misinterpret that in our day. Because we equate material prosperity with the blessing of God. That's not what Haggai's talking about. You may have enough food on your table, roof over your head, money in your bank account, and be more impoverished than the guy begging for food on the street corner. All right. Haggai chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. The people return to the Lord. The Lord instantly responds. Now, is not this a gracious God? The people turn to the Lord. 1, 12 and 13. The Lord instantly responds. I'm with you, declares the Lord. He wanted them to come back to Him more than they wanted to come back to Him. He was ripe and ready to give them His blessing. What a gracious God. All throughout the Old Testament prophets, they're constantly saying to the people, if you will seek Him, you will find Him. God doesn't make us pay Him back with a long period of remorse before He blesses us. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're walking through. I don't know how long you've been rebelling against God and like the people of Judah who came back with the remnant, putting yourself in front of Jesus. I don't know how long you've been doing that, but I do know this. If you'll turn to Him today, He'll meet you right now. What a gracious God. Chapter 1, verse 14. Why did they turn? The Lord stirred the heart, uh, the spirit of Zerubbabel. There's the king. Joshua, there's the high priest. And, quote, all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of, the Lord of hosts. Here it is. Their God. They put Him first again. But why did they do it? The Lord stirred their spirit. Well, why didn't the people instantly rebuild the temple when they got back? We could throw a bunch of stones at them, but there were actually a bunch of cultural inhibitions in the way of getting the work started uh, on the temple and their houses and other things. Ray Dillard, Trimper Longman, I'll just give you a quick summary. These 50,000 people who come back, they realize, man, the, the land has laid fallow. There was so much work to be done. The lower classes of the Judeans who had been left in that land had taken over the holdings, the houses and so forth of the people who went down to Babylon. And then there's all these legal disputes. Ezekiel chapter 11 talks about that. Jeremiah chapter 52 talks about that. So you've got this complex legal situation. That's my house. No, not anymore. Because <laughs> I've been living there for 70 years. And I raised my kids there. That's my house now. So you've got all this legal stuff to work out. So it's not that it's like, forget you, God. I don't want to work on your temple. I need to work on my own stuff. It's like, it, it, it's very complex. The whole nation is facing something like squatters living in everybody's property. Tensions have developed between the returnees and those who had remained in the land. And that tension, Nehemiah tells us in chapter 5, would still be there a hundred years later. Initial efforts to begin construction on the temple for those who were dedicated to doing so, were discouraged by every person around. They got remarks uh, and opposition from surrounding nations. Ezra chapter 3 tells us. Haggai chapter 2 tells us. Zechariah chapter 4 tells us. There were certainly challenges every way. There's the background. Now, why are we in this book today? I'm glad you asked. Here's our main point. What was the result of the temple being restored? Haggai tells us that's what happened. People dedicated themselves 
They returned to the Lord. The Lord was gracious to them. They dedicated themselves to rebuilding this ruined temple that Babylon had ransacked and destroyed generations ago. Where does the message of Haggai leave us? Where does it lead us? What's the result of this temple being restored? Haggai chapter 2, verse 7, in my translation, may not strike you at first as a radically Christocentric, Christ-centered verse. But there's a good reason that Haggai 2.7, when Charles Spurgeon preached on it, was preached beneath the sermon title, Christ the Desire of All Nations. There's a good reason that when Charles Simeon writes his commentary and expository notes on Haggai 2.7, the title of his notes are Christ the Desire of All Nations. Scores of pastors and theologians throughout the centuries have preached and taught and written on Haggai 2.7 underneath the title, Christ, the desire of all nations. How do they get that out of Haggai 2, verse 7? In the New American Standard translation, the verse says, I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. How do you get Christ, the desire of all nations? Well, some of the alternate renderings of that Hebrew verse will maybe enlighten us, the King James Version. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The NIV, I will shake all the nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. About a month ago, probably the vast majority of you, if not all of you, were singing or listening to a hymn written by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, written in 1739. In my estimation, it's one of the greatest meditations ever written on Haggai 2.7. And it says in that hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, Peace on Earth and Mercy Mild, God and Sinners Reconciled, Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Not a temple over there. Right here. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. And he goes on. The previous verse, Haggai 2.6, begins with the word for or because. God is saying to these people, be strong, take courage, get to work, because I'm going to do something. And what does he say he's going to do? In Haggai chapter 2, verse 7, he's going to shake the place up. He's not only going to shake the little temple mount, he's not only going to shake Judah, He's not only going to shake the surrounding Israel. He's not just going to shake the Middle East. He's going to shake the whole earth. He's going to shake the sea. He's going to shake everything in them. The New Testament picks up on Haggai 2, verses 6 and 7, and quotes it directly, perk up now. Hebrews 12, 25. How long has it been since you meditated on this one? Do it now. Don't miss this opportunity. Hebrews 12.25 See to it. See to it. Make it your business. Don't miss this opportunity. See to it that you do not refuse God 
who is speaking. Hebrews 12, written about 70 years after Jesus died on the cross. Uh, I'm sorry, about 70 A.D., about 40 years after Jesus dies on the cross. Hebrews 12 quotes Haggai 2 and says, right now, God is speaking to you through that passage. And you see to it that you do not refuse God who is speaking. Here's what he goes on to say. For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we turn away from God who is warning us from heaven. And His voice shook the earth then, but now He has promised, Haggai 2, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And then the writer of Hebrews goes to preaching. Let me tell you what that means, he writes in the next verse. This expression, Haggai's, Haggai 2, 6, and 7, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, says the writer of Hebrews, yet once more, now he's preaching three words, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, all the created things, so that those things which can never be shaken will last forever or will remain. Therefore, here's his conclusion, writer of Hebrews, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he reads Haggai chapter 2. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service. What would that look like? Reverence and awe. A-W-E. That's why I said you're a telescope. You're made to revere and stand in awe of God because He did something for you. He gave you a kingdom that can never be shaken. Satan, you, every sinner who has ever been born, and astonishingly, God Himself cannot move the foundations of this kingdom because it's built on the God who Himself is immutable. The writer of Hebrews, quoting Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, wants us to know as believers, Christians, that we are the ones who have received the kingdom that Haggai was talking about. Which is why so many people have said Christ is the desire of all nations. Christ is the answer to Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. When God shakes everything and His foundation remains, that's got to be Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson in his sermon on this same passage says, it is because we know that the Lord is going to do something that we must work. That's what Haggai's dealing with. Temple's in ruins. Where's God's presence among all you godly people? That's why I said, have you had a good day? Have you had a good week? Where's God's presence? You know what the prophet Joel said? He didn't say it to the people. He said it to God. He said, God's not with us. God's not with us. And he says to God, we have become like those people. Isaiah says the same thing in chapter 64. Like the people over whom you've never ruled. And then Joel puts it this way, why do all the pagan people say, where is your God? Where is He at? The people who came back with the remnant were content to live without God. We'll take God's place. We'll take God's stuff. Give me blessing A, B, and C. That's not the point. 
The point is the benefactor, not the blessings he gives. Every blessing God ever gives his people is supposed to be like a sunbeam coming out of the sun. And when you see the light, you're supposed to trace the beam all the way back to its source. His gift is himself. And the people were content to live without God. You remember December the 3rd, 1990. I remember it because of what did not happen. Now, I was a pagan when I went to middle and high school, so I don't need to tell you many of my stories, but some of those stories involved me not going to school on days that I should have. But there was a day I went to school when almost nobody else did. I guess I was such a nonconformist that if they told me not to come, I'd come, and if they told me to come, I wouldn't show up. But there was a day that I came and almost nobody else came. I can remember going to classes and walking the hallways and passing two or three people. December the 3rd, 1990. Do you remember that day? It's the day that based on an old kind of superstitious predictor of dates, Nostradamus, and then contemporary uh, meteorologists and geologists and so forth, taking his data and their study and blah, 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 mixing up in a bag, they said on December the 3rd, 1990, the New Madrid fault line would have an epic earthquake. And by the way, you're sitting on that line today. So 40,000 students on December the 3rd, 1990, Statistical data tells us did not come to school in the states of Arkansas, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Indiana because there was a prediction there's going to be an epic earthquake. You don't need to be in that building, do you? And that day went on and nothing happened. A lot of people have heard about the prophecy of Haggai. A lot of people have heard that the New Testament author in the book of Hebrews says God's going to shake the whole earth. They keep going to school. They keep going to work. They keep looking around and say, no, he's not. Nothing's happening. I do remember another couple of scenarios in my lifetime, maybe only three or four if I remember correctly, when the instantaneous and unsettling feeling that the whole world is trembling beneath me because I got to experience a little tremor. I've never been in an earthquake, but I've experienced a tremor. Houses are shaking, dishes are rattling, the earth is moving. And it's very unsettling because you realize there is power. And in a nanosecond, it can snap you like a toothpick. Haggai's saying that one day, thorough shaking, bone trembling, your knees won't wobble, nobody will be able to stand, unless they're on a solid foundation that cannot shake. Haggai wanted God's people to know that one day soon, God's going to shake everything pagan, everything carnal, everything not Christ-focused, Christ-saturated, Christ-centered, everything that's not dedicated to the desire of the nations. And He's going to bring all of it to ruin through this epic shaking. He will bring it to nothing. The prophet knew that there would come a day when the temple of God, which represented the presence of God among His people for all the nations, that the temple would one day be established by the king in such a way that the kingdom itself would not be capable 
of experiencing the shaking. God would never again allow his people to be in Babylon or in Judah or any place else in the universe without being saturated with his presence. Isaiah spoke about this day, and he connected his vision of the day when God's presence saturates his people, and they want to be with him more than they want to be anywhere else in the universe. Isaiah spoke about that day, and he connected it directly to the Lord Jesus in his messianic song in Isaiah 49, and he said, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? God speaking to Jesus. To raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's what Haggai's saying. You need God's presence more than you need anything, and so does everybody else around you. That's what Revelation 5 and 7 and 9 are about. So when we read Hebrews, New Testament application of Haggai's message, We find out that Jesus is the King of the Kingdom. He's the desire of all the nations who has come. But Haggai says, you got work to do. It's not a work that focuses on the Old Testament shadows of Christ. If you didn't notice, we're not in a fancy and elaborate temple today. We don't have blood sacrifices being offered in this room today. Because all those shadows are gone. The building, the physical temple pointed to the substance it was the shadow Christ is the substance now the gospel of Christ is to be spread by the people of God among all the peoples and the presence of God just disseminated through the propagation of the gospel into the lives of people who will repent of their sin and believe in Jesus they too are to be brought in as dwelling places of God that the nations may know that their desires and longings can be fulfilled in one and only one person That's the Lord Jesus. That Christ has come. That He has dealt with the problem of sin, which is the whole reason that this big elaborate building stood on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The temple needed to be rebuilt because there's a problem. You need a barrier between you and the presence of God. You need thick walls and thick curtains. You need doorways. You need access that's granted to you under certain meticulous conditions before you walk into His presence. You need to be barricaded away from His presence, but you need a structure that reminds you that you need His presence. But Revelation 22 says, God's going to flip it inside out. In fact, instead of barricading you away from His presence by giving you a structure, a.k.a. the temple, which reminds you that you need His presence, God's going to flip it inside out and He's just going to pour His presence everywhere among all His people. Revelation 21-22, I saw no temple in the new heaven and earth. Haggai's not going to be writing the same message in the age to come. I saw no temple because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, that's Jesus, are the temple. So as we close, think, think about the Gospel. Think about the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember when he was eight days old? We've got some eight dayish old in the room with us today. We got Chinedum and Judah Haven. We got little Felicity up church. Now I want you to picture little eight day old Jesus. Little eight day old Jesus. His parents bringing him at that age. Where are they taking him? To that temple. The one that the people in the book of Haggai restored. 
That's the very building that little eight-day-old Jesus is brought into. And the temple, as it were, walked right in, carried in the arms of His his parents. The temple walked into the temple. And never, never before that day had that temple been filled with more of the glory and presence of God than when little baby Jesus occupied it. And Joseph... Jesus' earthly father, we're told in the book of Luke, brought a sacrifice with him. And if you go back to Leviticus chapter 5, you'll find out that the sacrifice, two turtle doves, a pigeon, brought by the impoverished, who couldn't afford a, 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 a more elaborate sacrifice, but it was a provision made in Leviticus 5 for the poor, but it was a certain kind of sacrifice. They brought a sin offering. Leviticus 5 tells us. So there's Joseph acting as a priest, going into the temple with a sin offering. Meanwhile, Mary's swaddling the offering that would one day lay the death knell to all our sin. Jesus, as He ages, visited this very temple repeatedly. The reason it must be restored as a symbol of the presence of God among His people 600 years before Jesus comes is because Jesus was going to come and come into this very temple. He said on many occasions, in that very temple, statements about His own divinity, His deity, His ministry, His mission, why He came, that He's the Messiah, that He Himself was going to be sacrificed. The people knew what He was talking about. When He went up to the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed and sweated drops of blood in agony over the impending death that He would experience for your sin and mine, He walked off that hill through a valley to that very temple. And He stepped over the Kidron Valley which was full of the blood of the sacrifices of those animals. Jesus said, Just prior to His own death, if you tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. And John tells us that He was talking about the temple of His own body. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, I'm not talking about some like mythical fairy tale. I'm talking about real concrete situations. When Jesus of Nazareth was hanging on a cross, when He breathed His last breath, it was in this temple this one, in the book of Haggai, that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom and the preacher standing there dumbfounded not knowing what happened. And God is saying, you don't tear it from the ground up, I'll tear it from the top down, showing the whole world you can all come into the presence of God now. The New Testament teaches us that Jesus is the temple. He is the dwelling place of the glorious presence of God that you were made to behold and you will never be satisfied, never, if you use the telescope of your life to prop doors open. You've got to look at Christ where the acceptable sacrifice was made. When Jesus was two-ish years old and the Magi come from the east and they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which also go back to the sacrifices of Leviticus, what we see is the wealth of the nations, the wise men, coming to the temple. Which is what Haggai said in chapter 2. And in John chapter 1, we hear that Jesus tabernacled among us. The temple came here among us, full of the glory of God. And Hebrews says He radiates out the glory of God. And Hebrews chapter 7 says He didn't just go in like a priest. He is the priest. But like Isaac with Abraham, 
There was no sacrifice being brought into the temple. He is the sacrifice. He is the priest. He goes into the presence of God, not on earth, but in heaven, the true temple. And He offers His own blood on the mercy seat saying, Father, forgive them. Count my righteousness to their credit. Forever accept them because of who I am and what I've done. Don't ever let them go. Don't lose one of them. For time and eternity, would you save them to the uttermost as long as I'm in your presence? And then, talking about flipping the glory of the temple inside out, in 70 AD, that temple that Haggai instructed the people to restore and rebuild, in 70 AD, it was destroyed again, this time by Rome. It was ransacked. But the New Testament says, don't rebuild it. Not in so many words, but it says it this way. You're the temple. You individual Christians, you local churches. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6. You singular, you plural. You're the temple. Which is why I said at the very beginning, your greatest need is the presence of God. The whole reason the temple existed. The whole reason it existed was so that there would be a dwelling place where people could come into the presence of God. And the New Testament says in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Peter 2, living organism, alive, not brick and mortar, not stones piled on top of each other. You are the new temple. You're the presence of the living God if you're in Christ. And one day, no temple in heaven because the Lamb Himself is the temple. So therefore, Grace Church's singular mission vision until Christ comes again is to put as many emissaries of the kingdom on earth as God will give us the grace to do. Meaning to plant as many churches to scatter and pepper this land near and far with outposts of the kingdom that will never be shaken. Not everything we do has to immediately result in a new church for it to be called missions, but it does ultimately need to be aiming there and aiming there on purpose. That's our unapologetic aim. We have, a, we have limited resources, we have an unlimited God, and we have one singular mission. We want to see new churches planted who will again see new churches planted who will be doing all kind of works of good and deeds of kindness, hospitals and schools and whatever else they think they need to do missiologically in their context for the propagation of the gospel and the expansion of the kingdom through the establishment of more churches. And Haggai chapter 2 tells us that when that generation came back and they saw the restored temple, some of them were grieved. Ah, it's not as beautiful as the first one. And Haggai chapter 2 verse 9 says, don't worry about it. Because the latter glory, the glory that's on its way, the tsunami, and if you don't run, you're going to get crushed. <laughs> the tsunami that's coming, the latter glory is going to be way more than the former. Don't you worry about that first temple. That was just a shadow of the one that's on its way. So the application of today's sermon will show just a few slides and we've, we've asked one person to pray for each of these partnerships. The application is, by the grace of God, could we freshly, 
dedicate ourselves to living personally in the presence of God. And as a local church, to be a dwelling place where God would be pleased to come among us. To cultivate the kind of life that God says, those are the type of people that I love to draw near to. Not to manipulate revival. If we do this, God will do that. But to be the kind of people that if God so chose to manifest Himself again afresh in our day, we would be the kind of people that Chronicles talks about when the the book says, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth and He is searching for those whose hearts are completely His so that He may strongly support them. That we would be those kinds of people. And that we would seek to leverage our life and our resources for the expansion of Christ's kingdom. So in our domestic partnerships, the small list of slides would be this. Our neighbors near to us. Do you desire this year in some way to leverage your life for the expansion of the kingdom of Christ? You don't have to go on one of these trips to do that, but I do invite you to pray about it. Do you desire to be part of a purposeful expansion of the presence of God in the world through the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Pray about it. Well, if you're interested... You can visit the lower URL. Can't go this year, but boy, I'm interested in that. Or if you think this may be an opportunity for me, you could go to the top URL that's listed there for you. But let's go to the opportunities that are before us, and these obviously are not all of them. Locally, God's bringing the nations to us. We have refugees and other internationals who come from non-Christian contexts, many of them having never been around a Christian or a Bible. They're right here in our own city. Mark and Cindy Morris, some of our dear friends, are ministering among them. And you can see on that slide things that we can pray for. They work with Refugee Memphis. They are serving day in and day out some of the people who are most often most overlooked right here in our own backyard, but they're serving them with the Gospel of Christ. You could get involved in that. Pray about it. You could pray about other neighbors who are right here in our own community. There are two Afghan families that live within several blocks. Just one block behind me, there's a West African man whose wife and children are still in a refugee camp, and they're from an Islamic background. He lives one block from here. You can build relationships with internationals and come in Christ to them and show them the love of Christ, seeking to propagate the gospel. And you can do that, obviously, with nationals and native-born non-believers. International partnerships. Many of you know that we're working and praying toward working more intentionally with a good ministry in Zambia. Aaron Boving was here just last week. You can see some prayer points. We've already asked Brother Travis Crutchfield in a moment just to voice a prayer for them and a prayer for us that God would give us wisdom. If you look at the bottom of that slide, you can see upcoming trips in June and July. And the very last line on purpose, because we say it last in hopes that you might remember it, ask God if I should go. And you can see on the map where Zambia is. We're partnered, as many of you know, with a work in Southeast Asia. The Davis family, for whom we pray regularly, they're in our church's prayer directory if you utilize that. And we long to see the gospel advance where the majority of the people on earth live. So densely populated, such a dearth of the gospel. We're going to ask Ben Gaiman in just a moment to pray for that partnership. But again, the very last line says, ask God if I should go. Those are, there are trips lined up. You can see on the slide, April 2019. 
in India. We're going to ask Sister Asha in just a moment to pray for the advance of the Gospel in India. We'll ask her for obvious reasons. But our partners on the subsequent slides of these works in India, Vijay and Abigail Misala with Reach All Nations Ministries, Samuel, who has preached here, Samuel Bopuri on the, the next slide, has also preached here. He works in Venukanda, India. And then Sundur Rao, who works in Hyderabad, one of the, I think, the fifth most populated city in the country of India. Translation, bigger than any city we got here in the United States. Scores of lost people. Need for the propagation of the Gospel. Good Gospel laborers doing work. And the last line says, ask God if I should go. We're partnered with Brothers and sisters uh, throughout Nigeria, particularly Ephraim Piak in Kaduna, Nigeria. You can see where Nigeria is there on the map. We've asked Kelly Alge, uh, who came back with a gift from Nigeria several years back called malaria, and we're thankful God spared her life. But ask God if you should be part of what He's doing in Nigeria. There are trips, Lord willing, this year in June and November. Ask God if you should go. We're partnered in the United Arab Emirates near Dubai with Jason and Sarah Thomas who came here midway last year and shared with us about their work. Pray about the gospel spreading there. Such a strategic place where people from all over the world are coming to this new kind of industrial um, uh, technological enterprise uh, center and then going back out to their places. We're going to ask Laura Lancaster to pray for them. Then in North Africa, our brother Jeff Beekhuizen, who was worshiping with us two weeks in a row just a few months back, is serving in North Africa in a uh, very uh, sensitive place that has security restrictions, and we don't say publicly where that is, but pray for him. Pray for his work. Pray for his labors. He also is in our prayer directory. We're going to ask Justin Tucker, one of his friends, to pray for him in just a moment. But would you ask God if you should go? And then finally, what about our own city? not just internationals and some things we might romanticize about going a long way away to tell people the gospel. We should do that. Jesus told us to do that. That's our commission. But also we should open our eyes and pray that God would open our eyes to these domestic opportunities. I believe it's the last slide. Our own city. This is our brother Jason Harrington. He was recently appointed as a deacon of missions. He's serving in his first year. You should pray and you should consider talking to Jason about opportunities right here that he's already connected to, including the two Afghan families I mentioned that live in our neighborhood and a plethora of other local opportunities with internationals and others. Because, I want to say again, you got one little life. It's a vapor. Why don't we leverage our little life and all of our resources for the one thing that will last for forever? And let's pray about helping each other cultivate something that's so near and dear to the heart of God that from beginning, literally the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, where there's the temple, God's presence with His people, to the last chapter of the Bible, the Lamb is the temple, God's presence with His people. And He sent Jesus, the true temple, to make the true sacrifice. Why not try to join God in what He's been doing from the beginning. That is the spread of His glory and His presence through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's ask the Lord to refocus our attention on what He Himself is focused on. What we're going to do in a moment as we bow our heads, we'll invite all of those that we've asked to pray just to come and scatter yourselves up here. And we'll just pass a microphone among you. We're going to ask that each one of you pray about these Gospel partnerships. But as they're praying, 
Some of you need to be praying about something else. Instead of getting on a boat or getting on a plane or going across the street to tell somebody else about Christ, I wonder if you know Him. I wonder if you've thrown yourself on His mercy and you've believed the Gospel. Well, you should take these moments as we're praying for others to pray for yourself and to run to Christ and to ask Him to be merciful to you in His saving grace. Okay. Brothers and sisters, you just lead us in any order for those we've asked you to pray for and then we'll enjoy the Lord's Supper together.